The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Kentucky became the first state to win approval from the Trump administration to require some Medicaid beneficiaries to work or pursue jobs, the first work mandate for Medicaid. Twelve days later, advocacy groups filed the first lawsuit to stop Kentucky's changes, alleging the administration's efforts to overhaul Medicaid are illegal and go beyond the president's authority. A lot of firsts said in light of the fact that 10 other states have asked Washington to let them make similar changes, the implications of this first First legal clash are significant. My guest is Sydney Watson, professor at St. Louis University School of Law. Sydney, please describe Kentucky's changes to Medicaid. Um, well, Governor Blevins was elected on a platform to repeal the Medicaid expansion, and when that didn't seem to be politically uh, possible, he shifted to requesting this waiver, and the waiver really dramatically changes Medicaid uh, for the people who got coverage through the Affordable Care Act Medicaid expansion for low-income working re- working adults. It would impose work requirements. It imposes high premiums, even for those who are without any income. It includes loss of coverage and lockout for six months for failure to file paperwork. And it cuts a lot of critical services like transportation to and from medical services. It's a real transformation of Medicaid. It creates tremendous barriers to care. And it's estimated that about 20% of these working age adults who now have Medicaid coverage in Kentucky would lose coverage over five years. What are the claims in the lawsuit challenging Kentucky's waiver? Um, It's a series of claims. Uh, Some of them are based on the Administrative Procedure Act, that the waiver approval itself was an abuse of discretion and not in accordance with law. Um, There are other claims that it violates provisions of the Medicaid Act and the Social Security Act. And there's also a constitutional claim that it violates the Take Care Clause that requires the president and the executive branch to, and I quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. It's a constitutional claim that the Trump administration is explicitly and willfully trying to undermine the Affordable Care Act, trying to undermine the purposes of Medicaid through approving this waiver. Now, the administration has not responded to this lawsuit yet, but there's been so much talk about this Medicaid waiver. What are likely to be some of the legal responses to the lawsuit? Well, of course, the government, you know, has time to file their complaint, and then we'll we'll see the the briefing. I think one of the the key issues is going to be the agency's authority to impose this work requirement, to impose these 
premiums, uh, to impose these paperwork requirements. Um, and those claims turn partly on language in the Medicaid Act, but also language about Section 1115 waivers, which are a way for states to have additional flexibility in Medicaid uh, to implement, one, experimental programs, two, that promote the objectives of the Medicaid Act. And I think what we're going to hear a lot about is whether these new provisions promote the objectives of the Medicaid Act. Um, The plaintiff's statement is that the purposes of the Medicaid Act is to provide health insurance and health coverage. Um, The vision of Kentucky and of CMS is that Medicaid has suddenly become a program for work, to promote work, to force work. Now, something that I found a little odd is that the governor, Matt Bevin, signed an executive order directing state officials to strip Medicaid coverage from nearly half a million Kentuckians if a court strikes down any portion of Kentucky's waiver application. So if the court says his action is illegal, he'll pull health care coverage from residents of his state. Is that a not-so-veiled threat to connect those two? I think you're absolutely correct. It's very interesting political posturing that the threat is, if you sue me, I'm going to take away these benefits. And can he do that? Um, I don't know. I mean, what was interesting is he did run his gubernatorial campaign saying he was going to repeal this Affordable Care Act expansion. Once he was in office, I think he realized there were political consequences to that and that, you know, in for many Kentuckians, it's a crucial way to get health care coverage. And instead of going through with that threat, we see the waiver. So I don't know. I, I, I think it's public and political posturing. We'll see what happens as the lawsuit goes forward. Will this case have any impact beyond Kentucky? Oh, absolutely. As you mentioned earlier, 10 other states have in requests for waivers um, that include work requirements. Many of them also include these high premiums and other um, other barriers to care. Uh, so this is, I, I think, a fundamental legal issue as we move into the second year of the Trump administration. Uh, what are the Constitutional Administrative Procedure Act and statutory parameters that define the Medicaid program? Um, and uh, CMS and states have the authority to create these barriers to care. Is this in some way asking courts to decide the philosophical divide between conservatives and liberals over Medicaid, or is it strictly based on the statutes? Um, I think this is both a constitutional challenge and a statutory challenge, uh, but very much this is a legal challenge um, rather than merely a political challenge. Um, The Medicaid Act was passed in 1965, And many of the provisions in the Act make it different from traditional private insurance. Medicaid is a safety net program for the poorest Americans, and it's structured in a way to meet their needs. Um, And over the last 50 years, uh, while Medicaid has had rocky moments and been underfunded at times by states, it has really helped promote health and health care for low-income populations. And I think the, the fundamental statutory constitutional issue here 
is does the agency, do states have the authority to flaunt that protection and create a program that is really designed to set up a fence, a wall, a barrier between people and that health insurance program? Sydney, about 30 seconds left here. Who has the better side of the argument in your view? Um, All we've seen is the complaints so far. I don't think anyone who follows Medicaid was surprised that this complaint was going to be filed. There's been a lot of talk about these legal theories. We'll see what happens with the briefings. Thank you for being here. That's Sydney Watson. She's a professor at St. Louis University School of Law. A Brazilian appeals court unanimously upheld a graft sentence against former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva and added two and a half years to his jail sentence. Hours later, Lula accepted his party's nomination as its presidential candidate in an act of defiance. His lawyers vowed to take the case to Brazil's Supreme Court. Joining me from Brasilia is Ray Collett, Bloomberg News Brasilia Bureau Chief. Ray, what did the appeals court find? Well, essentially, they said that contrary to what Lula's defense lawyers said, that this was all fabricated, that it was a you know a political move to pull him out of the race. They said that essentially there was sufficient evidence to conclude that Lula not only participated in the scheme, he helped. Uh, uh, forge it, if you will, by appointing um, key personnel and staff to um, state companies who then walked away with millions of dollars in their in their pockets. And he also personally benefited, they argued. He received um, a beachside apartment, um, or really at least an upgrade to it, um, in exchange for favors for, for a construction company. And, of course, the verdict was three to zero, which left little doubt that the Lula's, Lula's defense lawyers were hoping for a split vote, which would have given them more, more chance for for an appeal, but but there it is, and and um, and that's the that's the final verdict. He's been leading the polls for October's presidential election, and since the conviction, his poll numbers improved a little. Can you explain the loyalty he inspires despite the charges and the conviction? Yes, absolutely. He's, he's somewhere in, uh, north of 33%, 36% is, is the voter intention that he has in the, in the polls. Lula is one of those historic figures. I mean, he's, he's, he's larger than life. He's, he's pulled millions of people out of poverty. He's probably the first, first president that comes from, um, from a rather humble background. Um, and people don't, don't forget that. And of course, we have to remember that when he was in office, those were the boom days. That's where, you know, the, the commodity boom was going on. Uh, Brazil was exporting soybeans, iron ore, all sorts of things, and things were, were going well. Um, and so there's a bit of reminiscing going on as well. Well, if we had Lula back, things would be good again. Um, but let's not forget, there are more people who don't want him president than there are people who do. Um, so that's something to, 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 to bear in mind. Not everybody wants him back. De Silva still has several avenues uh, of appeal. Is there likely to be a lot, months of uncertainty ahead of the vote? That's absolutely right. It's going to be a long legal battle, um, finding legal loopholes. 
And unfortunately, that's the worst scenario um, for investors, for citizens, especially after a very damaging episode of years of crisis, of doubts over democracy. The people that, that actually want dictatorship back has, has gone up. And that's the worrying part. You know, people want a clean, fair election. The last thing Brazil re- needs right now is doubts over who can run, why this person can or cannot run. Hopefully all that will be settled before the, the, the election on October 7. And I've read some politicians saying that if he is not in the election, there will be those kinds of doubts about it. Well, again, I mean, that's what they're alleging, that this is a a political move to pull him out of the the race. We do have to keep in mind, he's not the only one being sentenced. Uh, As a matter of fact, this whole car wash operation that's been going on for for years has put dozens of people behind bars from different political parties. Lula's not the only one. And the same court that upheld his uh, conviction yesterday has upheld more than two dozen um, similar convictions. So I think that puts it a bit into, into, um, into perspective that this perhaps isn't quite the political persecution that um, Lula would, would have it be. He's 72 years old. Why did the court add two and a half years to his jail sentence to make a 10? Well, look, uh, I'm afraid my, my, my legal expertise <laughs> there comes to an end. They, they simply looked at the facts, and, and if he if found guilty of certain charges, then they, you know, got out the calculator and find, uh, you know, found that that, that, that that deserved more than 12 years. But I think the, the, the psychological impact of that is just that it was all the more of a blow. You know, they, they wanted him to... to to, you know, uh, the, the split vote at least, maybe get him off the hook. But uh, no, on the contrary, it got worse. So, you know, uh, a big blow for Lula that day. And what are the—I know you're not a legal expert on this, but are there are people saying that he has a chance on appeal? Um, the chance is very small. I mean, frankly, there's a, there's a law in Brazil that clearly states anybody who's been convicted um, in an appeals court, uh, criminally convicted, cannot run. So they're going through the motions. They're going to look for all legal loopholes. But frankly, the, the chances are small. There is a law. Um, the, 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 what, what needs to happen is that uh, justice needs to be done quickly, again, as I said, so that Brazilians can have a fair, fair and clean election. When I was reading about the amount of security yesterday around the courthouse, it was really, it, it sort of was like a, a, in a something that you'd see in a movie because it was just so overpowering. Describe what what the setup was like. Yes, particularly for, for Brazilian standards. There were sharpshooters on the roof. There were even Navy patrol ships on, on a river that's... Uh, Porto Alegre in the southern the southern city of Porto Alegre is, is close to the ocean, but this was a river. Uh, the Navy patrol ships that we, we they they closed down part of the the, the airspace uh, above the courthouse. So quite quite you know tight security measures, um, which are a bit unusual for for Brazil. I think the concern was because tens of thousands of supporters of of Lula were were bussed into the city, um, that the conditions for safe uh, trial were were not given. Hence the the extra security measures. And it's not entirely, I mean, we had a couple of months ago, last year, um, the agriculture ministry here in Brasilia was set on fire, for example, during during a protest. Um, So I I think they were just trying to be be on the safe side and and ensure that, uh, you know, 
violence and interruption of this trial would have would have been worse yet than than any sort of outcome. Um, so I, I think it was probably the wise thing to do. All right, and thank you so much for being here, Ray. That's Ray Collett. He's the Bloomberg News Brasilia bureau chief. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.